Welcome to Gone But Not Forgotten, the podcast about celebrating the lives and careers of actors who left us too soon. I'm Audrey Cornell, and in this episode, I will be sharing the biography and filmography of old Hollywood actor, Gene Tierney. Did you do a picture, the title of which became and was at, uh, was at that time a, a great song and became a very famous song? Yes. Yes. Uh, 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 please. That's no a hint, hint John. No, She's just given a hint. This girl on my right. That's right, Miss Kugelin. Well, are you Jean Tierney? Jean Tierney's right. Jean Eliza Tierney was born November 19, 1920, in Brooklyn, New York, to a wealthy family. She was named for an uncle who passed away at the age of 17 from diabetes. Her father, Howard, was a successful insurance broker, and her mother, Belle, taught physical education. Jean was the middle child between a brother, Howard, nicknamed Butch, and a sister named Patricia. Her first five years were spent in Brooklyn until the Tierneys moved to a large farmhouse in Westport, Connecticut. Jean had a 16-year-old nanny named Louise, who was from Germany and loved to entertain young Jean with folk tales from her homeland. Jean was an incredibly imaginative child and loved to spin tales for her family and classmates. She later said, In my circle, you finished school, married a Yale boy, and lived in Connecticut. I wanted to be an actress. Nothing else mattered. Howard Tierney soon bought land across the street from their current home to build an even larger estate, which ended up costing over $60,000, over $1 million today. The Tierneys were certainly comfortable in their wealth and often used what they had to bribe Jean into getting passing grades at school, such as a new dress or shoes. When she was 10, the Tierneys traveled to Europe, where Jean got her first taste of life abroad. After returning to the States, she began her career in acting in a school production of Little Women, in which she played Joe March. She pleaded with her parents to let her study in Switzerland, where she was sent off to Briomont School in 1936. The teachers and students spoke only French, so Jean quickly became fluent in the language. She gained several friends and often wrote home to her family about the exciting and new opportunities she was experiencing. Her time at school ended in two years, where she was picked up by her brother Butch and his friends and traveled throughout Europe for several months. They returned home and Jean began attending Miss Porter's school in Connecticut. It wasn't long after when the Tierneys moved to California, except for Father Howard, who stayed behind to run his business. Jean and her family were given a tour of Warner Brothers since a relative worked at the studio where they met Betty Davis, who was filming The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. Jean asked Davis if she would mind if she had a copy made of one of Davis's dresses in Jezebel for her coming out party. Davis obliged, and Jean was quickly spotted by director Anatole Lidback, who remarked that Jean should be in pictures. The very next day, Jean was set up for a screen test with future director John Farrow, and was offered a contract for $150 a week. Jean's father did not approve of his daughter becoming an actor and considered her too young to be involved with Hollywood. Jean was devastated but honored her father's wishes. She returned back to Connecticut for her coming out and was officially a member of high society. Unfortunately, this was not the life that she wanted to lead and was itching to return to acting. Howard finally agreed that Jean could start on Broadway and would accompany her every Wednesday to audition for parts. It took months of failed auditions before she was approached by George Abbott, a theater producer, director, and writer. Jean met with him and was offered a role in Mrs. O'Brien Entertains, 
in which she played an Irish girl named Molly O'Day. She was now living off her own means in New York City, living at the American Women's Club, a safe space for young, independent women. She earned $75 a week, over $1,000 today, and was given glowing reviews by newspaper writers. Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times said that Jean is very pretty and refreshingly modest. However, the play itself did poorly and was one of George Abbott's only bombs. Thankfully for Jean, she was spotted by a Hollywood scout and offered a contract with Columbia Pictures for $350 a week. Howard was upset with this news, but obliged, even setting up a company to manage Jean's expected funds, which was named Beltier. Jean was encouraged to change her name to be spelled as J-E-A-N, as her current spelling was considered too masculine, but she adamantly refused. She was hired for Coast Guard with Ralph Bellamy and Randolph Scott, but was unable to remember her lines and quickly replaced with Frances D. Jean's agent, Leland Hayward, introduced her to Howard Hughes, the infamous producer-director who had recently broken the record for crafting and flying the fastest plane in existence. 19-year-old Jean fell for his charms, and Hughes was quick to shower her with gifts and attention. He also gave her brother Butch a job working at his plane production plant. During this period, Jean experienced debilitating stomach pains, which Hughes' doctor identified as a problem with her appendix. The appendix was removed, but her mysterious pain persisted. In her memoir, Self-Portrait, Jean recalled that the pains went away once she was out of the public eye for good in the late 60s. I can no more explain what caused them than what cured them. Certainly, I felt the strain of wanting to do so well in a world that was new to me. There were people who depended on me. I had to deliver. Eventually, Jean's contract expired without receiving any work, and she returned to the stage in New York. Her defining role came with The Male Animal, in which reviewer Brooks Atkinson wrote that Jean blazes with animation in the best performance she has yet given. It was during her run in the show that producer Daryl F. Zanuck spotted Jean and pressured her to sign with Fox Studios. She eventually agreed and signed a contract with stipulations to her liking. She would work within 30 days of the signing or leave not be forced to dye her hair, would not correct her overbite, and would not cosmetically alter her nose. Zanuck agreed to the terms and Jean was signed for a $750 a week salary and began working on her first film, The Return of Frank James, alongside Henry Fonda in the sequel to the 1939 box office hit, Jesse James. Sure do beat all, a lady newspaper man. Well, I'm not really and truly a reporter, not yet. But I'm going to be. My father's the owner of the star. Maybe you've heard of him. Randolph Stone? I can't say I have, but if he owns the paper, should think he'd be doing well enough so his daughter don't have to work. Oh, I don't have to work. And if you must know, my father's very much opposed to it. He thinks I should finish college and then sit around with my hands folded, waiting for someone to get around to marrying me. I'll do nothing of the sort. Women are awakening. They want to do things. They... Down where I come from, women figure they're doing plenty, feeding a dozen farmhands and raising kids. We can't all feed farmhands and have babies. Everybody to their taste. I want to be a newspaper woman. Honored to be working with such a professional as Fonda, Jean aspired to do her greatest work and be known as One Take Tierney, as Fonda was nicknamed that for his town. However, once she heard how she sounded in the film, like an angry Minnie Mouse, in her words, Jean took up smoking to lower her voice. She was also awarded the worst female discovery of 1940 by the Harvard Lampoon. 
Jean brushed it aside and began working on upgrading her publicity and appearance. She considered herself fat and started a diet that she followed for the next 20 years. My trouble was eating the wrong things. What I liked was fattening, and while I played with the idea of reducing, I never did anything seriously until one day I overheard a remark that the late Ernst Lubitsch had made about me. He said, Jean Tierney could have a great future in pictures. It's a pity she's so fat. Therefore, she ate nothing but meat, vegetables, and fruit. Jean began working with publicity woman Peggy McNaught to pose for countless cheesecake shots and appeared in hundreds of magazines and newspapers. Her second film, Hudson's Bay, alongside Paul Muni, loosely based on the true story of explorer Pierre Radisson's adventures in Canada. It required her to have her first on-screen kiss with John Sutton, and Jean was incredibly nervous. She later recalled that years later, Sutton walked right past her on the lot without even recognizing her. Her next picture required her to play a rather unglamorous role in Tobacco Road, a controversial movie for its time. Every morning, she was sprayed with olive oil and then coated in dirt from her head to her feet to give her hillbilly character some realism. Despite being featured heavily in the film's promotional material, Jean was only in the finished product for a short period. She recalled once asking director John Ford how he happened to pick Jane Darwell, a plump and ponderous woman, for the role of Ma Joad in The Grapes of Wrath, a movie about people who were starving. Ford said, You know, some people wonder how I happened to pick you to play Ellie May. Jean considered this a good lesson and appreciated that Ford had given me the chance to break away from the image I had as a Blue Book graduate of the Waldorf Astoria stag line. Jean grew disappointed with the low success of her work and decided to go back to Broadway. What she didn't know was that behind her back, her father had waived the part of her contract that originally stated she could return to the stage if she felt like it. She and her mother purchased a small home in Beverly Hills where they would host parties for the Hollywood crowd. Since she wasn't acting, Jean set to work on her next project, going on dates every night with men whom Fox assigned her, the likes of which included Desi Arnaz, Mickey Rooney, and Rudy Valley. She was happy to spend time with a different man every night and ended up meeting her first husband, 28-year-old Paramount costume designer Ole Cassini. The two had met at a party thrown by mutual friends, and Jean later said, I hadn't been with Oleg for half an hour before I decided I liked him. He was born Oleg Loyoski Cassini de Capazucci in Paris, 1913, to a Russian count. When the Cassinis were forced to leave, they decided to raise their son in Italy, where his mother opened up a dress shop. Along with his time in his mother's shop, Oleg was greatly inspired by Hollywood films and dreamed of becoming a fashion designer. He arrived in New York City in 1936 before moving to Hollywood shortly after. Coincidentally, while playing doubles tennis, Cassini learned that his partner worked for Paramount and they were looking for a designer. He was hired the next day, and his first work came with 1941's I Wanted Wings, starring Veronica Lake. Only a week after meeting Cassini, Jean was already thinking of marriage, which her parents greatly disapproved of. Jean and Oleg decided to elope, but nature seemed to be against them as well, as the day they chose to wed was so rainy that the plane could not take off. Jean finally convinced Cassini to meet her parents and receive their blessing, which did not seem like a possibility. Belle Tierney was not impressed, even going so far as to tell her daughter, in front of Cassini, good-looking men fall for you left and right. Why are you so insistent on him? Howard even told Jean that he would declare her legally insane if she married Cassini. They disliked him for the fact that he was an immigrant, had already been married and divorced once, 
and felt that he was after Jean's money. To make matters worse, Jean's parents were going through their own marriage troubles as Howard was having an affair with Belle's best friend. They decided to separate and Jean never viewed her father in the same way again because of his betrayal of their family. The United States was in the midst of the Great Depression and Jean said that she never wanted to be poor. She used the help of a stockbroker to invest her money and purchase several properties to fix up and sell, later saying that one year I made more money in real estate than from the movies. She started working on her next film, Belle Star, as a replacement for Barbara Stanwyck, who had had to drop out. Jean was soon plagued by an eye problem that caused her eyelids to swell up and become incredibly itchy. No doctor seemed to know what was wrong, and studio head Daryl F. Zanuck was looking to replace Jean since she was holding up the picture. Her co-star, Randolph Scott, was on loan to Fox and decided to waive his rights for additional money he would earn from his loan so that Jean could stay in the film. Well, when am I to be sworn in? Into what? Your army. Sorry, I haven't a petticoat brigade. Well, then form one. Haven't I enough troubles? But surely you owe me that much after I saved your life. What could you do? You probably never fired a shot in your life. You could teach me. Come in. Closer. So that you can put your arms around me. Well, if you want to learn, the first thing you got to know is how to make a smooth, quick draw. In this neck of the woods, a man's age is measured by the number of split seconds he can take off his draw like this. See how I file off that front sight? That sword won't catch in my holster. And don't stop to aim. You haven't time for that. Shoot the sense of direction. Think you can remember that much? I try. Hmm. Her condition was later diagnosed as angioneurotic edema, which would come and go through her life. If anything good came out of Jean's health troubles, it was that her relationship with Oleg Cassini grew stronger and they planned to elope again. They felt their love was more important than getting Jean's parents' blessing. Fox Studios was also unhappy with the couple's getting together as she was under 21, which was the official age of an adult in the 40s, and her Belltier contract would be void, requiring another to be written up. Howard knew that Jean would want to terminate this contract entirely, which was not good news for him. Without his daughter's knowledge, he had been funneling money from her funds for his failing insurance company. She never controlled a single cent of her earnings whilst under this contract and never thought to ask her father for a statement of the company's transactions. Both of Jean's parents submitted unkind words about her marriage to the press, and several of their friends stopped speaking to them. Belle had ended up firing all of the people that worked for Jean and moved to New York without telling her daughter ahead of time. Jean told the press, I'm sorry my mother and father disapprove of my choice, and I can't understand that they do not see that this is the most important thing in my life. I love my husband, and I know that I will win my parents over. Cassini was fired from Paramount, and the studio's hopes that he and Jean's marriage would quickly fall apart. However, they were confident in proving them wrong and moved into a small cottage to start their new life together. Jean's parents' marriage was officially over and their home in Connecticut was foreclosed. In an attempt to reconcile with her mother, Jean bought back the house, and their relationship started afresh. However, money was still an issue for Jean. She had signed a new contract with Fox that her father's company, Belltier, would no longer receive funds from Jean's salary since she was now married. Howard sued his daughter for $50,000, claiming that he should continue to be her agent. 
He lost the battle once it was discovered that he had stolen about $30,000 from Jean over the course of two years. Every cent Jean had ever made had been funneled through the corporation, and she was given a small allowance. Howard's new wife paid off all of his debts, minus everything he had taken from Jean. She never spoke to her father again. Jean quickly began work on her next movie, Sundown, which was filmed in New Mexico. She played the daughter of an Arab trader who helps British soldiers fight against the Nazis. You have to understand the British. I do understand them. Just as I understand that you are not a Hollander. I beg your pardon. Who are you going to get to replace Hamut? Replace Hamut? It was very foolish of him to use that machine gun. You were going to make him chief of the Shenzi. I really don't know what you mean. Hamut was helping you distribute the guns. The Italians who were in Abyssinia were to have done that, but the British have driven them out. And now you have lost Hamut. You still have to distribute your guns. And I have the largest trading network in East Africa. My interest is to protect all that. And I can only do it if I'm on the winning side. Working conditions were incredibly difficult. As much of the movie was filmed in the sweltering heat, and Jean was upset about being away from her new husband. She spent much of her time offset writing him letters and calling when she got the chance to go into town. When she returned home from the shoot, she found out that Cassini had been self-harming when he felt her absence. They would be working on Jean's next movie together, The Shanghai Gesture, in which Jean played the illegitimate daughter of a Chinese woman, played by Ona Munson. Cassini designed the costumes. However, the film bombed at the box office and was director Joseph von Sternberg's last Hollywood film. Part of the issue could have been that it was severely butchered by the Hays Code due to the depictions in the original story of prostitution, drug addiction, and its portrayals of Chinese characters. I thought I knew everyone in Shanghai, Miss Buffy. You must have arrived quite recently. Just last week, Monsieur. I've heard so much about your wicked city. I've wanted to see it all my life. Oh, I've lived here for 27 years now. If there's anything you want to do or see, amateur be full. Needless to say, with the greatest personal enthusiasm. There's something you can do for me right now, monsieur. I've always wanted to meet a Chinese gentleman. That one at your table, for instance. Oh, he's no gentleman. He's a compador. You don't want to meet him. What's wrong with that? Don't you like yachts? Not commodore, but comprador. No, no, a go-between carries water on both shoulders without spilling any. Takes money from both sides. Try for shady, mademoiselle. You'll protect me, monsieur. I'd love to meet him. Jean had asked her director if she could keep several figurines that were used in the picture and set them up in her home. One night, she returned to find that Cassini had lined them up on the back fence and shot them with his hunting rifle in frustration over the awful reviews the movie had gotten. The studios were hesitant about hiring Cassini, and he decided to start working on helping the crew that was renovating their home. While Jean was off working on her latest film, Son of Fury, and her first of three collaborations with Tyrone Power, Cassini took a $5 a day job hauling stones up the hill to the main house. Jean was growing tired of the grueling work of filming, but returned to Hollywood to work again with Henry Fonda in Rings on Her Fingers, in which she was a con artist attempting to swindle Fonda's dopey millionaire. 
I'll support a wife and get a yacht on $65 a week. Savings, $31. Food, $15. Rent, $15. Miscellaneous, $4? That's for clothes, doctor bills, and any little emergencies that come up. And in 10 years, we'll have enough to get another boat. Oh. I left out $10 every week for acne. For who? That's the detective agency I hired to catch that crook. That's a necessary expense. They only trapped that rat with my money we didn't even worry about. Yes, that would be dandy. Oh. Yeah, that's not so good now. Expecting a girl like you to give up everything and scrimp and save to buy a boat. It was all right when I was alone, but now it's not the same anymore. But I want it to be the same. I don't want to spoil anything. By rights, we should be saving to buy a house on the hill with gingham curtains and kids running around playing cowboys and Indians. You know, we're just being impractical. Isn't it wonderful? It was her first comedy, which came at poor timing. At one point during filming on Catalina Island, the cast and crew were alerted that Pearl Harbor had just been bombed. Everyone was forced to pack up and head back to the mainland, unsure if the waters were safe or being patrolled by Japanese submarines. The U.S. had officially entered World War II. Cassini applied for U.S. citizenship and his papers were processed right in time for him to join the Coast Guard. He and fellow actor Victor Mature enlisted together and patrolled the California coast on Mature's 64-foot yacht. They would be out for 48 hours at a time and then return home for 48 hours. Gene began working on Thunderbirds, a war propaganda picture about a man training to be a pilot and then falling in love with Gene's character. Meanwhile, Gene pushed Cassini to become an officer, considering his work in the Coast Guard less than satisfactory. However, he had to be an American-born citizen. Although his mother, who was living in Washington, D.C., was able to get him transferred to the U.S. Army Cavalry, where foreign-born men could become officers, basic training took place in Fort Riley, Kansas. While Cassini was working on climbing up the ranks, Jean did her part by volunteering at the Hollywood Canteen and selling war bonds. She only filmed one movie in 1943, Heaven Can Wait, as she soon learned that she was pregnant. Cousin Henry. Yes, Cousin Martha. You must never do anything like that again. Is that what you came back here to tell me? I think it's outrageous. I hardly know you. Why, even Albert, my own fiancé, never did. Is she? Of course he kissed me. Why not? After all, we're engaged. But he never kissed me like that. Like what? Oh, I hate you. I hate you. I don't even know why I stay in the same room with you. Please forgive me. But can't we be friends? Just friends? Never. Now, look. We're going to be related, aren't we? And we're going to see each other. How can we help it? I suppose we can't. And if we meet in the future, we don't have to talk about personal things, about you and me. Let's talk about something neutral. For instance, Albert. Why not? By the way, do you love Albert? I'm marrying him, am I not? Are you? Yes, I am. No, you're not. You can't. You haven't got the book. What book? How to Make Your Husband Happy. Well, it might interest you to know that I went back and bought it. Does it tell you how to make a man happy whom you don't love? Now, look here, Cousin Henry. Albert's a fine man. Yes, he is. He's good, and, and he has integrity. And he's full of high ideals. Do you love him? Well, I'm going to make him a very fine wife. At least I'm going to try my best. There'll never be a moment in his whole life when he'll ever regret having married me. And if you ask me one more question, I'm going to leave this room, and I'll never come back again. Never! <laughs>
Ironically, her character in the film was desperate to leave Kansas, while in reality, Jean was eager to move there to live with Cassini while he was at Fort Riley. She took one last stop at the Hollywood canteen before leaving and woke up the next day covered in red spots. She was diagnosed with German measles, aka rubella. The spots disappeared within a week and she traveled to Kansas as planned. Jean rented a small house in nearby Junction City and worked nonstop to decorate their new home with secondhand furniture that she polished up. She would invite her neighbors over for parties and made her specialty wartime meal, spaghetti bolognese. As her pregnancy progressed, she began learning new recipes from the other army wives and loved the domestic, unmovie star-esque lifestyle. Cassini was assigned to travel to Virginia, and he and Jean agreed that she would give birth in Washington, D.C., since both of their mothers lived there. She experienced a difficult labor and gave birth to a two-and-a-half-pound baby named Antoinette Daria Cassini, who would go by Daria. Cassini was able to fly to Washington to see his wife and new child, where the doctor told him that Daria was blind. Cassini relayed the information to Jean and her mother, who commented that it must have somehow been Cassini's fault. In reality, it was Jean's having been exposed to German measles in the early stages of her pregnancy that caused Daria's blindness, deafness, and developmental disabilities. Cassini later said that Jean was almost catatonic. I would see that same vacant expression again and again over the following years. I would see it every time there was bad news about Daria. Jean's sister Patricia gave her niece 11 blood transfusions and she was eventually in healthy condition and able to go home. Jean's old flame, Howard Hughes, had heard about Daria's condition and flew in a top infant disease specialist to look at her. Unfortunately, nothing could be done, but Daria seemed to be progressing at a usual rate. In a letter Jean wrote to her mother when Daria was one year old, she noted that her daughter was at an average height and weight, loved to play on Jean's lap, and was learning something new every single day. Cassini had other thoughts, later admitting that he thought very seriously about killing the baby. I would take her to the ocean. We would drown together. I would die with her because I could not live with the shame of having to hide it. But I couldn't kill myself. My sense of self-preservation was too strong. Years later, while at a tennis party, Jean was approached by a woman who told her that she was in the woman's branch of the Marines and had met Jean at the Hollywood canteen, and then asked her if she had caught German measles. The woman went on to say that she was sick that night and being quarantined, but broke out to visit her favorite actress. Jean later said, After that, I didn't care if I was ever again anyone's favorite actress. Strangely enough, ten years later, the same woman ran into Cassini and told him her story. Their marriage began to crumble and they decided to get a divorce. Jean also made the choice to send four-year-old Daria to a mental institution where Jean would often go and visit her. She started working on her comeback picture, 1944's Laura, playing the titular role that had been turned down by actors like Jennifer Jones, Hedy Lamarr, and Rosalind Russell for being too small. Clifton Webb gave an Oscar-nominated performance in his first sound picture, his last appearance being in the 1930 film The Still Alarm. Director Otto Preminger was known for his obsessive and controlling behaviors, often making the cast and crew work for 18 hours a day. Webb ended up suffering a mental breakdown after shooting Wrapped and had to be institutionalized. Originally, Ruben Mamoulian was signed on to direct the film, but Zanuck replaced him with Preminger, who said that the cast was all hostile to him. 
I learned later that Mamillion had called each of them individually and warned them that I did not like their acting and intended to fire them. To be fair, Mamillion had reason to be upset, as Preminger had discarded everything he had done to the picture, all the reels he'd shot, the costumes he'd had made, and even the famous portrait of Laura that Mamillion's wife, Azadia, had made, were completely thrown out. Preminger decided to have a photo taken of Jean, which was airbrushed with paint to give it the appearance of a painting, which is now one of the most iconic props in all of movie history. Despite the difficult working conditions, Laura ended up being a major success and Preminger became Jean's favorite director to work with. However, she said, I never felt my own performance was much more than adequate. I am pleased that audiences still identify me with Laura, as opposed to not being identified at all. The tributes, I believe, are for the character, the dreamlike Laura, rather than any gifts I brought to the role. You're alive. If you don't get out at once, I'm going to call the police. You are Laura Hunt, aren't you? Aren't you? I'm going to call the police. Well, I am the police. Mark McPherson. What's this all about? Don't you know? Don't you know what's happened? No. Haven't you seen the papers? Where have you been? Up in the country. I, I don't get a newspaper. Haven't you got a radio? He was broken. Somebody was murdered in this room. Do you have any idea who it was? No. Who had a key to your apartment? Nobody. You sure? When did it happen? Friday night. What are you going to do now? Find out who was murdered. And then find the murderer. The next year brought Jean her Oscar-nominated performance in Leave Her to Heaven. The role was extremely different from anything she had played before, and Jean was proud of her performance. She lost the Oscar to Joan Crawford for Mildred Pierce. Oh, I'm sorry. I was staring at you, wasn't I? I didn't mean to, really. It's only because... because you look so much like my father. When he was younger, of course, your age. A most remarkable resemblance. For a moment, I thought... You forgive me. Well, to tell you the truth, I was doing quite a bit of staring myself. And I assure you, it's not because you look like my mother. As a matter of fact, I can't say you look like anyone I've ever met before. Then why did you stay? Do you really want to know? It was not too unflattering. Now, you know perfectly well that nothing I could say about you, the way you look at me, could be anything but flattering. Of course, if you don't like flattering. Oh, but I do. On second thought, it won't be flattering. It'll be the truth and nothing but the truth. Any resemblance to flattery will be sheer coincidence. Shall I proceed? Proceed. While I was watching you, exotic words drifted across the mirror of my mind as summer clouds drift across the sky. Mm. Couldn't you be a bit more specific? I'll try. Watching you, I thought of tales in the Arabian Nights, of myrrh and frankincense and... And patchouli? Patchouli, that's it. Wait a minute. it here it is i quote as he watched her exotic words drifted across the mirror of his mind 
He thought of tales of the Arabian Nights, of myrrh and frankincense and patchouli. Unquote. So that's where it came from. Oh, I guess so, but really I wasn't... I give you my word, it's weeks since I read the thing. It must have impressed you enormously. The book? Not particularly. Rather a sloppy job, I thought. I agree with you. You do? Jean's next picture was noted Hollywood screenwriter Joseph L. Mankiewicz's directorial debut, the gothic thriller Dragonwick, in which she was paired with Vincent Price for the third film in a row. It was during filming that she met John Kennedy, who was currently running for Congress in Boston. The two began seeing each other, much to Jean's family's displeasure. The Tierneys were staunch Republicans, and Kennedy was a Democrat. Jean knew she and Kennedy would be married and asked Cassini to file divorce papers. Despite having many relationships of his own, Cassini was upset about Jean wanting to move on and tried to convince her that it would be a bad idea to officially separate. She started working on The Razor's Edge, which was Tyrone Power's first movie after serving in the Marines. The press, as well as Power himself, pushed for Jean to start a relationship with the beloved matinee idol, but she was dedicated to Kennedy. Either way, Cassini believed that Jean and Power were having an affair. Once, after shooting had wrapped for the day, he decided to surprise Jean but couldn't find her on set anywhere. He went to Power's dressing room and completely trashed it, thinking that he and Jean were off having a tryst. As much as Power wanted to be with Jean, she just wanted to be friends. She pushed for Zanuck to allow Cassini to do the costumes for Razor's Edge. After serious verbal battles, he finally relented and let Cassini make the costumes for both Jean and co-star Anne Baxter. One such costume included Jean's character's wedding dress, which had been the actual gown Cassini had designed for the wedding they had never had. The film ended up being a major success, earning eight total Oscar nominations, though none for leads Jean and Tyron Power. What's kept you? You've been hours. I came the instant I got your call. What's happened? It's about Larry and Sophie. The stupid, blind idiot. He must be mad. If you'd calm down for a moment, I might be able to make head or tail of what you're trying to say. He's going to marry her. Oh. Oh. How do you know? How should I know? He just called me on the phone. Oh, I'm frantic. So I see. He even had the effrontery to ask me to be nice to her. Well, it's his own affair, isn't it? She's an awful woman. She's bad, bad, bad. She soaks from morning till night. That doesn't necessarily mean she's bad. Quite a number of respectable citizens get drunk and do silly things. They're bad habits like biting one's nails, but I don't know if they're worse than that. I call a person bad who lies and cheats and is unkind. If you're going to take her part, I'll kill you. I'd prefer if you gave me a cup of tea. Oh, help yourself. He's seen a lot of her since we were at that dive that night. He says she's quit drinking. The fool thinks he's cured her. Have you forgotten what he did for Gray? That had nothing to do with it. Gray wanted to be cured. She doesn't. How do you know? Because I know women. Do you think she'll stick to Larry? Of course not. Sooner or later, she'll break out. It's in her blood. It's a brute she wants. That's what excites her. It's a brute she'll go after. She'll lead Larry to hell. It's very probable, but I don't see what you can do about it. I can do nothing about it. But you can. I? Larry likes you, and he listens to what you say. You know the world. Go to him and tell him he can't make such a fool of himself. Tell him it'll ruin him. He'd only tell me it's none of my business, and he'd be quite right. It may not turn out so badly as you think. Oh, you make me tired. She's rotten to the core. 
Do you think I've sacrificed myself only to let Larry fall into the hands of a woman like that? How did you sacrifice yourself? I gave up Larry for one reason only. Because I didn't want to stand in his way. <laughs> oh, come off it, Isabel. You gave him up for a square-cut diamond and a sable coat. Oh! <laughs> oh. You know, your, your Uncle Elliot wouldn't have thanked you if you'd broken one of his crown derby plates. They were made for the Duchess of Dorset and their priceless. Pick up that bread and butter. Pick it up yourself. And you call yourself an English gentleman. No, that's one thing I've never done. Oh, get out of here. I never want to see you again. I hate the sight of you. I'm sorry for that because the sight of you always gives me pleasure. The day after the premiere, Jean went to visit Kennedy at Cape Cod for a week, and he told her that they would not be able to get married, which meant the end of the relationship for Jean, who had wanted a stable relationship. In her memoir, Jean recounted that she sent him a congratulatory telegram after he was elected president, but noted that she had voted for Richard Nixon. In another twist of fate, Cassini ended up designing for Kennedy's wife, Jacqueline Bouvier, while she was first lady. Right before filming began on The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, Jean broke her foot climbing up the stairs of a friend's house. Adjustments had to be made to film her without showing her slight hobble due to the cast. Luckily, since it was a period piece, Jean's leg was covered by her long dresses, costumes that were designed by Cassini, and she had the cast removed early to get rid of the hassle. Do you be eavesdropping? Feminine literature. What does he mean, feminine literature? He had no way of knowing it's your book. Brass, he says. I'll polish his brass for him. And the way he was smirking at you like a cat at the fishmonger's. Should have slapped his face. Why? I found him rather charming. Rather charming. Now you're starting to talk like him. How in blazes do you want me to talk? That's better. I think you're being extremely childish. I'm only trying to protect you from your own worst instincts. I'll manage my own instincts, thank you. What made you lie to the blighter? I didn't lie to him. You did? You told him he was Anna's favorite author. You know perfectly well she hates Uncle Nettie. And reads nothing but Jedi Dick, the rover of the Spanish main. Well, I, I had to say something. Mm, you should have pushed him out of the cab. In another minute, I would have. Why, Daniel, I believe you're jealous. Of course I'm not jealous. You take me for a blasted schoolboy. Besides, jealousy is a disease of the flesh. I've never known you to be so disagreeable today of all days. She and Cassini had agreed to give their relationship another try and put a stop to the divorce process. Jean deduced that it was their long separations from each other that had put a strain on the relationship. So whenever she completed a picture, she would live with Cassini in New York. Jean found out she was pregnant again during filming of her last collaboration with Tyrone Power, That Wonderful Urge, a remake of Love is News, a 30s power and Loretta Young starring vehicle. You came very well equipped, Mr. Thomas. Do we pour it on your head? Is that the way you like it? Well, there's nothing wrong with my head. I don't know. You're probably suffering from shock and exposure. Oh, no. Just curiosity. You went to quite some pains to get me alone. Why? Pains is right. But that tree wasn't in the script. Oh, here. Hold these a minute. I hope you won't laugh at me, Miss Farley, but I've written an article about you for, for my little paper. You too? Yes, well, I wouldn't think of publishing it without having you read it first. That's a new wrinkle anyway. So that's why I wanted an hour or so alone with you. Here, if, if you don't mind, this is a, 
begins, Ren. Few people know the true story behind Sarah Farley. She's been hurt, deeply hurt, by all the forces always arrayed against inherited wealth. She's a fine, warm human being who's been taught to conceal her true emotions behind an icy wall. Well. You, you like it? How could I help liking it? But you're not really going to print this, Mr. Thomas. You know, I think it's time someone printed your side of the story. A sort of rebuttal to people like that, that, that Tyler. Oh, let's forget him. Here's to Tyler. May you drop dead. Well, is it accurate? Have I my facts straight? Well, this isn't true, that I'm engaged to Andre de Guillon. He's just an amusing companion. And up here... Well, uh, why don't you go through the whole thing? Tell me the real story. Then I can use quotes. Make it authentic. You see, with quotes from you, we can make that stuff that Tyler's been writing look sick. Well, if you like. I'm not really that interesting. Oh, you are to me. Go on. Tell me everything. From the beginning. And sometimes I wish I'd been born poor. And then I kick myself and say, don't be an idiot. Because I'm fond of all the things money can buy, too. Even Andre, who comes high, prices being what they are these days. You see, it's a very dull and prosaic story. And I've talked about myself much too long. Oh, no, no. I could listen to you all night. I've never told anyone these things before. Have you enough for your article? Plenty. I have your permission to quote you. Of course. Now, this is dynamite. For Tyler, that is. Here's to Tyler. May he drop dead. The Cassini's second daughter, Christina, was born on Jean's 28th birthday, and the little family was happy again. Jean went right back to work while Cassini was still in New York with his new designing business, for which he had turned down a deal to work with Warner Brothers. Jean's six-month-old Christina and her nurse traveled to London for Jean's latest project, Night in the City. She starred opposite Richard Widmark, who was playing a con man, and Jean was his girlfriend. She enjoyed filming in London and would spend her time off work at the horse races with Widmark and his wife, Jean Hazelwood. From here on, Duchess, it's a life of ease and plenty for you. Now, all I need is 300 pounds to no. develop. But it's the biggest thing I've ever found, Mary. No. I've got it right here in the palm of my hand. No. For 300 quid, we can package 5,000 uh, boxes. Some no. Some half a crown. That's a profitable... No! Market. You've got the money. You know you've got it. You've got it right here. Yes, yes, I've got it. Put it by shilling after shilling. But not for this. Not for mad get-rich-quick schemes. Oh, look, Mary, the this money's there it. for the day you come to your senses. Settle down to no matter what. A, a grocer's, a, a tobacco shop, anything done in the light of day. Oh, listen, Mary, Harry. I... Do you think I enjoy slaving night after night in a silver fox? Getting drunks drunker? But I'm sticking it out. Waiting for the day we can marry. Lead decent, normal lives. I know, I know, That's what the money's for, and until then, we don't touch one penny of it. You don't understand, Mary. This is our big chance. Big chance? <laughs> Again? Big chance. Always the big chance. Last month, the Fabian Mail Order Company couldn't lose, but we lost 50 of the best. Before that, the Fabian Tourist Bureau, the Fabian Song Publishers. <laughs> what wasn't I going to have? The Royal Suite on the Queen Mary, a house in Mayfair. But this is different. It's a sure thing. It's always different. Now the Fabian Fuel Feed, a fortune with every pill. Yes, a fortune. 
Jane returned to the States to film Where the Sidewalk Ends, directed by Otto Preminger and starring Dana Andrews as a corrupt cop. Jane played a fashion model, and Cassini made his first on-screen appearance as a designer. Even though she was back home, Cassini was often still in New York, and their marriage began to deteriorate once again. Her next couple of movies were comedies, which Cassini had heavily advised her against. Feeling unsure, Jane still made them. The mating season, and on the Riviera. She convinced Cassini to move to Connecticut, close to her sister Pat. But he still needed to travel to the city every day, and Jean was not happy living as a housewife. They decided to move back to the city, and Jean went right back to work. While she and Cassini were separated for a few years, he had partaken in several affairs and continued even when they were back together. Jean was also involved with Howard Hughes, whom Cassini was extremely jealous of. Once, he hid in the bushes of their home with the two-by-four plank and caught Jean and Hughes together, leaping out of the shrubbery, narrowly missing Hughes, and then the two took part in a car chase. Jean and Cassini were so jealous of each other that they decided to divorce for good, a decision that was verified once Jean began working on Way of a Gaucho, which was shot in Argentina, which was in the midst of a difficult dictatorship. 20th Century Fox was only filming there to use up frozen assets and had consent from the government, but the cast often felt like they were walking on eggshells. Cassini had discouraged Jean from doing the movie, and his not coming to visit her on set made Jean sure that she wanted a separation. The Indian? Dead. Oh, thank you again. Folks, I should thank God. Never thought I'd thank God for a man's death. <laughs> Where'd he capture you? The Aliando Estancia. I was visiting him. Don Miguel Aliando? Yes. Do you know Miguel? Did the Indians attack the Estancia? No. I was riding alone. I thought they were gauchos. Riding alone? What was Miguel thinking of to let you ride alone? I didn't ask his permission. Then you're the fool. Perhaps you'd better take me to your commanding officer. I have no commanding officer. What do you mean? There are no soldiers within 20 leagues of here. I'm a deserter. I didn't understand. And I'm asking myself what I can do with you. I can't take you to the mountains, and I can't leave you here either. I follow the watercourses downhill. Where... Do you know where you are? No. You know how far it is to the Estancia? Or even its direction? Please. Leave me alone. Just go. Come on, I'll take you back. During filming, she began displaying erratic behavior and was difficult to work with the first signs of her mental illness coming to light. On Christmas break in Buenos Aires, she met Prince Ali Khan, who was in the news for his tumultuous relationship with Rita Hayworth. Khan was immediately smitten, while Jean was less than impressed. She returned to the United States, filed for divorce, and was loaned to MGM for the Plymouth Adventure with Spencer Tracy, whom she had a brief affair with. The producer of the film wanted Jean to be in his next movie, Never Let Me Go, 
the story of a Russian ballerina during the Cold War. Now, my dear, it is my duty to warn you. You do not wish for Philip to be my man. It's not a question of what I wish, my dear, it's... The Soviet. They do not wish either. But I wish very much. They can make things very difficult for you. Sir, I have love for Philip. I have the wish to be his wife and to be together with him always. You will tell us, no, no, but we say, yes, yes. And then you will say, uh, dashed young fools. Then you will say, dashed young fools, good luck. No, yes? Not as simple as that. You must realize there's no certainty you'll be granted an exit visa. Why they not give me the visa? I am nobody. You're Russian. He's American. We go together. They may not permit it, my dear. You must understand, both of you, you may be together for just six months. Then for six months, we will be together. I have the wish to be the woman to Philip for always. But if only for six months, then better for six months than never to be the woman to Philip at all. Jean trained for several weeks to complete basic ballet training and was doubled in long shots by ballerina Natalie Leslie. Jean became close with her co-star Clark Gable, who bought her relieving cream for her constantly sore feet and shared stories of his wife, Carol Lombard, who had died years before in a plane crash. Jean remembered Gable being extremely kind during her struggles with mood swings, which were more severe than ever before. Jean's mother encouraged her to start up a relationship with Gable, but Jean thought he was too old. He later offered her a role in 1953's Magambo, but she declined, and it made a star of Grace Kelly, who happened to be Oleg Cassini's current girlfriend at the time. Jean reunited with Ali Khan at a party thrown by mutual friends and found herself drawn to him, beginning a whirlwind romance that spanned Europe and the States, even though he was still technically married to Rita Hayworth. Jean remained in contact with Cassini since they wanted to support their daughter together, but of course Cassini was disappointed in Jean's latest choice of boyfriend, as was Jean's sister Patricia, who felt that Khan was just using Jean as another trophy. While filming Personal Affair in London, Jean found that she was unable to remember her lines. She credited her maid Ruby for getting her through the movie by helping her memorize her lines. Her symptoms increasingly got worse, but she continued on until she completely fell apart in early 1954, during The Egyptian, in which she played the pharaoh's sister, and Khan served as a historical consultant since he was knowledgeable about Egyptian history. The two had recently become engaged and lived together with Jean's daughter and mother in Mexico while Jean was filming. She would drive across the border to Hollywood to work. Khan was hiding out in Mexico because of his latest legal battle with Rita Hayworth. Their lawyers were currently discussing the matter of child support and whether or not if Khan entered the United States meant that he would be served with custody papers. Khan enjoyed the fact that Jean was more interested in the parties and horse races that Hayworth was so intimidated by and Jean was more than happy to flaunt her new fiancé and the $25,000 ring he had given her. In 1954, she told Modern Screen Magazine, I knew I loved Ali a year and a half ago. He told me he loved me long before that. He proposed a year ago, May. We probably will be married within six months. She added that she would give up her career and move to Europe to live with Khan. Jean had been having dreams of Daria and felt plagued. She was also receiving backlash from her family about marrying Khan, whose father was preventing their marriage because of his failed relationship with Rita Hayworth. 
Gene and Khan ended up calling everything off, as Khan did not want to give up his devotion to his country and wanted to sort out his divorce with Hayworth. Jean returned to Hollywood. Her latest picture, The Left Hand of God, cast her opposite Humphrey Bogart, who was secretly battling cancer. Jean was at the height of her fight against mental illness, and the two helped each other complete the film. Jean said, I was so ill, so far gone, that it became an effort every day not to give up. I knew that if I got through the picture, I had to get myself to a hospital. The studio bosses assured Bogart that I was a trooper, was aware how much had been invested in the film, and would not let them down. In a 1979 interview, Jean talked about her issues. In, in Self-Portrait, uh, you describe vividly your, your struggle with mental illness. Yeah. Do you think being in the spotlight added to your problems? No, I, I think... Too much, too soon? No, I don't think it was that. I think I had a weakness, and it was just that things started piling up on me, you know? And when you realize that one out of 10 people in the United States today have trouble with mental illness, to some degree or other, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think if I had a quieter life, perhaps it wouldn't have surfaced. surfaced. You went through some uh, awful things uh, because of the misunderstandings mm -hmm. about mental illness, uh, yeah. didn't you? Because oh, so many people yeah. do not understand what it's all about. They all, yeah. They all think the minutes the word, they put that they say mental illness, they say, oh, you know, it's a terrible connotation. Anyway. Yes, and also the, the words that they give the disease, you know, because I asked the doctor one time, I said, what is it that I've got? Can I read about it? Can I learn about it? And I stole a book one time and read it and didn't understand any more when I got through than when I started. What was your problem? But the doctor, well, my, that's what everyone asked. I mean, the answer to that would be a slight touch of insanity. You know, which shocks people after that. Mm -hmm. But there is no such thing as a problem. There might be with some people that get well and never have it again or something. But I have it from time to time. And I can hallucinate and believe my hallucinations. But I'm always in complete control, and I always come out of it, luckily. And I'm given medicine to deal with it. But it might never have surfaced if I had a very quiet life. But too many things yeah, happened. I mean. But I don't think it was the motion picture business. I think that you have to have the first requisite for an actor or an actress. Everybody knows the motion picture business is the strength of an ox. Of course. You know that oh, too. Oh, my. Yeah. The pressures. you got to be strong the physically. pressures are incredible. They yeah, really you got to be strong. After shooting wrapped, Jean moved in with her mother in New York City and was suspended by her studio for rejecting several scripts. Her memory was foggy and she could no longer trust anybody. The press hounded Jean and her family for answers, but all they were told was that she was sick with the flu. After meeting with the doctor, Jean was admitted to a sanitarium called Harkness Pavilion in New York. She underwent several series of... She underwent several series of electric shock therapy, which was considered a helpful breakthrough in the medical field. It involved Jean being strapped down to a table, administered a muscle relaxant so that the spasms in her body would not break her bones, and was shocked with a current of 80 to 90 volts between her temples. While the therapy momentarily relieved Jean's depression, it also erased hundreds of memories and completely fried her brain. She was next sent to the Institute for Living in Hartford, Connecticut, where her living quarters was a small cell. She would be let out for psychotherapy sessions and more electric shock therapy. 
Jean recalled that the therapy shocked its victims into some measure of sanity. It seemed to do so by inducing a temporary amnesia. It triggered a physical feeling that was comfortable and benign. You can hardly be depressed over something you no longer remember. The results often were so dramatic that helpless people could soon manage everyday things that once seemed intimidating. After one round of electroshock, she broke free from the nurse and ran out of the building to the middle of town, where she found a store to call her brother, who was her power of attorney and took care of her money matters. She just wanted to go home. Several nurses found her before she could use the phone and transported her back to the institute. She remained on her best behavior for three more weeks and finally was allowed to see her family, who would visit every single week. Her electroshock treatments continued for a total of 32 sessions in all. Jean suffered from extreme headaches and constant vomiting, and after physically lashing out at a nurse, was locked in a dark room with no windows or a toilet for several hours. Finally, after 18 months at the Institute, Jean was released back to her mother's custody in New York, where she had to relearn almost everything about herself. She spent most of her time sleeping, sometimes for days on end. Her mother tried to get Jean to do something, at the very least for her young daughter, Christina, but Jean was so depressed she couldn't do anything. Eventually, she decided to climb out on the ledge of her mother's 14-story floor apartment and jump off, but changed her mind when she realized that she wouldn't look pretty in her coffin if she died that way. Someone had seen Jean out on the ledge and called the police, who alerted Belle Tierney about her daughter's suicide attempt. Jean's doctor arranged for her to be taken to the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. Thankfully, the atmosphere there was much more comfortable and Jean would no longer have to take part in electroshock therapy. Her memory had been permanently altered by the 32 treatments and would never be the same. Jean met with a doctor whom she would discuss a variety of subjects with, like her relationship with her father, failed romantic partners, and her guilt over Daria. Jean also began taking up knitting and created hundreds of knitted pieces. She was subjected to the cold pack, which entailed her being wrapped from the neck down in icy wet bed sheets for 30 minutes like a mummy to try and rejuvenate her brain. In August of 1958, Jean was finally able to go home after almost a year at Menninger's. She was set to star again opposite Clifton Webb in Holiday for Lovers and even began seeing Ali Khan again. Jean, her mother, and Christina decided to take a vacation to Aspen, Colorado, where Jean met her soon-to-be second husband, oil man W. Howard Lee. Lee was in the midst of divorce with actor Hedy Lamar over alimony. Jean spent every day with Lee until she had to return to Hollywood, but she ended up dropping out of Holiday for Lovers and was replaced by Jane Wyman. Jean felt herself slipping mentally again and decided to check back into the manager clinic for one year. She kept in contact with Howard Lee through letters, which she looked forward to receiving. After three months of treatment, Jean was allowed visitors, and Lee flew in from Houston, Texas, every other weekend to see her. The clinic encouraged Jean to get a job and set her up to work with a woman named Billy Talmadge in Topeka, Kansas, who owned a dress shop. Jean began living with an elderly widow and would visit the clinic twice a week for checkups, whilst working 9 to 5 at the dress shop as a salesperson. Her star status helped her make even more sales, but she ended up owing Talmadge money since she bought more dresses than she sold. Jean was released around Christmas of 1959 and married Lee on July 11, 1960, where they had met in Aspen, Colorado. 
Jean's first husband, Oleg Cassini, was heartbroken to learn the news, but remained close friends with Jean until her death. He had paid for daughter Daria's care and shared custody over Christina while Jean had been receiving her treatments. Jean moved in with Lee in Houston, Texas, and was happy to be away from Hollywood. Seven years after her last screen appearance, Jean was approached by Otto Preminger to appear in his latest film, Advised and Consent. Jean agreed to do it, as it was a small part, but the insurance company adamantly refused to insure the picture if she was involved. In return, Preminger told the company that if they refused, he would cancel their services on any future film he made, so they relented. Jean completed her part and returned home back to Lee. A year later, she began work on George Roy Hill's southern melodrama, Toys in the Attic. She played Dean Martin's mother, despite being the same age. Her contract with 20th Century Fox required her to make 10 films in seven years. Jean had gone over the seven-year limit, but they agreed to let her do one more movie and then let her go. She had a small part in The Pleasure Seekers, a remake of 1954's Three Coins in the Fountain. She continued to work every so often over the next few years, mainly in television. Jean finally retired in 1980 and spent most of her time traveling with her husband, as well as supporting several charities in Houston. In relation to her experiences with mental illness, she said that she would do everything I can to help the cause, talk about it, help raise funds. You can lose an arm or a leg, and it really isn't so bad. To lose your mind is the most dreadful thing. The mind is the most beautiful part of the body, and to lose it is the greatest tragedy. Howard Lee died in February 1981, giving Jean a happy marriage for two decades. She was especially grateful for how gracious he was with her and her mental health struggles. She spent the last 10 years of her life with her friends and grandchildren. Jean passed away on November 6, 1991, due to emphysema after decades of smoking. Her legacy will live on in her iconic films and characters. Please join me and my co-host Louise next week, in which we will talk about Jean's movies and her personal life, as well as many other topics. Thank you so much for listening to the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week. See you then. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Call